The Bob Murphy Show, episode 243. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to solve the mystery of why was it that after the coronavirus panic, when the Fed pumped in all sorts of money, we saw prices rise. And, uh, you know, I just drove by $5 plus a gallon gasoline up here in Massachusetts. And that seems to be like what free market or just standard market-oriented economists would think, right? Duh, prices are rising because the government's creating too much money. Duh. How could you not think otherwise? It's not trade unions. It's not OPEC. It's not greedy corporations. The big thing that changed was, I'm still doing this funny tone to be the economist colleagues. The thing that changed was the government pumped in a bunch of money and that's going to make prices rise. Duh. Okay. Is the problem with that is that the government by which I'm being brought and including the Federal Reserve pumped in a ton of money after the 2008 financial crisis. And in fact, some of us whose names rhyme with Saab Burpee, even bet publicly two of our colleagues saying that consumer price inflation was going to break 10% year over year within a few years after the QE program started. And that poor person lost the, those wagers, much to the delight of Paul Krugman and Brad DeLong. Okay, so I'll stop being cute here and just in case some of you are new listeners, you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? So what happened was after 2008, the Federal Reserve started the so-called QE program. So incidentally, the Federal Reserve itself never called them officially, like in the press releases or the descriptions, quantitative easing. And they certainly didn't number them like, oh, QE 1, 2, and 3, the way we refer to these episodes. Okay, but anyway, those so-called quantitative easing programs, QE 1, 2, and 3, involved at the time what was an extraordinary, unprecedented amount of Federal Reserve monetary inflation at the level that the Fed can directly control, right? So to the extent that the Fed can buy assets and create reserves for the banking system, the Fed did that. They, in fact, more than doubled what's called the monetary base in less than a year. And again, that stuff all began aggressively in the fall of 2008 when the financial markets were imploding with, you know, mortgage-backed securities, suddenly becoming toxic assets and things like that, okay? In fact, I remember Glenn Beck had a chart showing, I don't remember if it was the monetary base or the assets held by the Federal Reserve, but those are, they're not identical, but they're very correlated. And he had a chart of that in his TV studio. And to get his listeners or his viewers to see just how crazy this was, what the Fed was doing, and I think that, what I'm referring to happened in like, I want to say November or December of 2008. I might be a little bit off, but it was, that was the general time frame. On his show, he had 
either a screen or a poster showing a graph. Like I say, it was, it was either of the monetary base or the Federal Reserve's assets on a chart, like a line, line chart. And Glenn Beck was on a forklift and it was, you know, driving it along, do, 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 1970s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, no big whoop. And then all of a sudden, in late 2008, the thing shoots almost straight up. And Glenn Beck in the forklift, you know, starts raising himself up as a visual aid to emphasize, look at how crazy this is. And especially because in conjunction with that, then the Obama administration, you know, Barack Obama gets elected and starts putting into place all sorts of programs that would restrict supply, very anti-growth policies, things like, you know, talking about a carbon tax, kind of push through things that further cartelize healthcare, running massive budget deficits. And by the way, the, the issue with the government spending, it's not the government spending per se causes prices to rise. Just like you spending money per se doesn't cause prices to rise if the Fed hasn't accommodated that. Okay. So with all this stuff, again, unprecedented monetary inflation at the level that the Fed can control, coupled with all sorts of anti-growth measures, you know, talking about taxing the top 1%, blah, blah, blah. I was pretty confident, okay, you restrict supply and you boost demand because of all the new money being created. Surely that's going to lead to high price inflation. And yeah, the government can massage the numbers, but the government could massage the numbers back in the late 70s and early 80s. So my reasoning went. And back then, official price, consumer price inflation broke 10% year over year. So I thought it was going to happen again. And I bet David Henderson and Brian Kaplan that it would. You know, and we hammered out the specific time frame and which measure the CPI we're using and all that stuff. And I lost. As some of you may remember, after a few years with various people, and it wasn't just Austrians, it was other market-oriented economists who politically would tend to be against the Obama administration. A bunch of us, you know, I wasn't a signatory to these open letters, but, you know, there was a famous open letter signed by a bunch of heavyweights saying the Federal Reserve's actions risk debasing the currency, blah, blah, blah. They should stop these aggressive QE programs right away. That sort of stuff. It was hard to win the public's trust after the stagflation of the 70s and early 80s. And we don't want to squander that. You know, that sort of language. And so then when CPI didn't do anything unusual throughout 2009 through whatever, 2014, guys like Paul Krugman and Brad DeLong were running victory laps and saying, you guys are idiots. Look at these people. They don't understand modern money and banking. They don't understand Keynesian economics. These guys are trapped in like a 1930s way of thinking and you shouldn't trust them because look, they were all warning about massive price inflation. I mean, they would just would have called it inflation and they were wrong. So their model is wrong. And the fact that they're clinging to their model in the face of being so incredibly wrong just shows how ideological and dogmatic and unscientific they are. They don't like government spending. They don't like monetary inflation because they're getting paid by rich corporate fat cats who want to keep wages down and who live off of dividends from their corporate stock. And so for them, you know, they don't, they don't like monetary easing, something like that. And I'm not exaggerating. Like that was the response. Okay. 
So I will link to in the show notes page. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 243. I'll link to some things where you can read up on this history and, and so on and get a flavor of all this stuff. And after a while, most normal people stopped worrying about price inflation. You know, I remember my phone metaphorically was ringing off the hook right after the 2008 crisis. Just regular people. I'm not talking about like people who were supporters of the Mises. And so, I mean, just regular people, especially in the financial sector, wanted to know what the heck is going on. And they didn't trust the orthodox economists, the guys at you know, Ivy League schools or the people that would be featured on CNBC regularly. Instead, they wanted some people who thought outside the box, or obviously those are the types of people that were interested in my analysis. And I was going around giving presentations. This is when I teamed up with Carlos Lara, for those of you who know that element of my career. And we were going around giving presentations. I was explaining the Austrian business cycle theory, explaining how it was loose monetary policy that led to the housing boom and bust. And then I was showing charts of what the Fed was doing, saying, if you think the housing bubble was bad, well, look at what they're doing right now. They're blowing up a bubble that's going to be way worse than that. And for several years, a lot of people were very receptive to that. And I was trying not to just be a doomsayer and fear monger. And I would acknowledge that at the front end and say, look, I know some people are perma bears and that's how they sell their newsletters and whatever. But not trying to do that. But on the other hand, this is the way the numbers look to me and this is the analysis. So here you go. But after a while, nothing bad seemed to happen, right? The stock market kept going up at least every time they would inject more money. And particularly, the consumer price index did not skyrocket. And you could say, well, they're fudging the numbers, but the acid test was, what's the price of gasoline? Because the government can't, they can say it's illegal to raise the price of gasoline, but then that causes shortages. And that clearly wasn't happening. Gasoline was not jumping up to 4 or $5 a gallon, which in my standard analysis, I thought was going to happen. And it didn't. Okay, so then now after the corona crisis or panic, the Fed pumped in even more money. So what the Fed did in 2020 and 2021 dwarfs what it did following the 2008 financial crisis in terms of the rapidity with which they pumped in money, like the annual percentage increase. And this time around, boom, prices did respond the way one might have supposed would be automatic and natural and duh. So it gave me pause. I didn't want to just say, yeah, what do you think was going to happen when you create all this money? Because I knew, wait a minute, that's what some of us were saying back in 2009, and it didn't happen then. And so before I was running Victory Laps, I wanted to really be comfortable myself to understand how come it didn't happen back in 2010, let's say. Okay, so in my book, Understanding Money Mechanics, I have a whole chapter on this issue of, and, and by the way, I wrote that chapter before the recent bout of price inflation really took off. So I was still writing this analysis when it seemed like, hey, the people warning about price inflation because of monetary inflation post-2008 have egg on their faces. What happened? That was the context in which I wrote this chapter. And the point of Understanding Money Mechanics, that book, that the Mises Institute put out. It's supposed to be a primer on how money and banking work, right? And the goal was that we wanted even like a Keynesian college professor to have no qualms about making that a resource available to his or her class for like an undergrad money and banking or, or just whatever, macro class, whatever. And so it was not supposed to be dogmatic. It wasn't supposed to say, look at these Keynesian idiots. 
it was just supposed to say, here's what this school of thought says, here's what this school of thought says, like to be real neutral in the presentation. And so in, in that book, in the chapter, I think the title was Crying Wolf on Inflation? Question mark. And so then I just went through some of the popular explanations that I've encountered over the years as to why was it that despite a huge injection of money by the Federal Reserve in terms of what it can control, how come you didn't see a corresponding increase in consumer prices? And so I went through and, and I wasn't like saying this is why I was just listing, giving the pros and cons of the various possible explanations that I had encountered. But I'm saying now to you folks today, I'm recording this in June 2022. It's on the heels of my presentation with Jeff Deist and some others in Orlando recently for the Mises Institute. We gave a presentation on money and just in reviewing some of the material for that talk I gave there. I finally felt comfortable enough that, okay, I have enough of a handle on what happened and the differences between the two episodes for me to say, this is at least the start of the explanation. Okay. So let me say one more thing before I dive in here. What is not a sufficient explanation, one that I've seen people make, is a lot of economists to sort of excuse or explain away, oh, how come some people were like, and some people were like throwing around terms like hyperinflation, even as of 2010 and 11. And so that's why you could see some of the Keynesian types were like, ha ha, look at these idiots. They're just trying to scare people who buy their newsletter. We're clearly not getting hyperinflation. What's wrong with these people? Okay. So for people who wanted to defend them, one of the things they said is, oh yes, normally when the Fed pumps in all kinds of money, that would cause prices to rise because in a typical cycle, the Fed pumps in reserves and then the commercial banks go and lend that out. And that increases the amount of money in the hands of the public. And then that's how they go and buy more gasoline and buy toilet paper and cans of tuna fish. And that's what pushes up energy prices and food prices. And that you know shows up in the CPI. And there you go. And they said, but in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, two things Number one, the banks were skittish, right? Because all their mortgages just became dodgy or not all of them, but a lot of them. And so they tightened up their credit standards, like the kind of borrower that they would give a loan to. And so most of what the Fed pumped in just stayed bottled up in the banking system. So yeah, if you just looked at charts showing how much money did the Fed inject, that would be misleading because that didn't end up in the checking accounts of Joe Smith. And then on top of that, to help explain why that was, is the Fed in the fall of 2008 began paying interest on reserves to the commercial banks. So if the commercial banks kept their reserves parked at the Fed, the Fed began paying them interest, which was a new policy introduced after the financial crisis, immediately after. And so the way I would describe that, some of you may be familiar with this terminology, is I would say at this point, time, the Fed began paying banks to not make loans to their customers. So we shouldn't be surprised. So the argument goes that you didn't see price inflation aggressively shoot up because all that money just stayed bottled up in the banks. Now, those factors are true. But to me, that was not a sufficient explanation. Because even with all those factors, still, if you looked at M1, and M1 includes 
currency held by the public, you know, like Benjamin's $20 bills, $5 bills, and checking account balances, right? So if you go and put your Bank of America card into the ATM and say, check my balance, and it says $600, that $600 is part of M1, okay? So M1, and if, and again, the money that's literally in your wallet in terms of currency, green pieces of paper with dead president's portraits on them, that amount is also included in M1. So M1 is what most people mean when they say money in the hands of the public. And M1 shot up in the wake of the financial crisis. The percent change, so as of December 2008, M1 was 16.6% higher than it had been a year earlier. All right, and if you say, well, I don't have context for those numbers, there was one brief period in 1987, in January of 87, where M1 growth was 17.5% year over year. But other than that, that was the highest growth rate of M1. And the chart I'm looking at goes back to 1960. Okay, so again, let me say it again. The growth rate of M1, which you know is money in the hands of the public, was the highest in December 2008 that it had been since 1960, except for one period in early 1987. All right. And then if you're curious, later on in August, 2011, M1 growth actually hit just about 21%. It was 20.96986. Okay. So that's why at the time when this was unfolding and price inflation was not going through the roof, and I saw some people quote on my side saying, well, that money's just staying up in the, you know, bottled up in the banking system. The banks are being induced not to lend because of the interest on reserves and da, da, da. And to me, that was like, eh, that, that's not the full story because M1 is still growing at historically, I don't know if war unprecedented is right because during like wartime and stuff, I imagine M1 grew more. The, like I said, the, the figure I'm looking at goes back to 1960. But clearly from 1960 up through that point, the growth in M1 following the Fed's actions in 2008 and beyond had allowed for money in the hands of the public to find as actual currency and then checking account balances to grow faster than it had since 1960 over the last 50 years. And in particular, it was a lot higher than it had been in the late 1970s. Okay, that's another thing maybe I should point out to you. In the late 1970s, M1 growth never broke double digits, okay? So if you're trying to explain, oh, the reason we had stagflation in the 70s, but not in 2009 and 2010, right, meaning rising prices, was because of technical changes in bank skittishness, and so the banks weren't lending, and so the money was staying bottled up. No, that doesn't work. The rate of growth in money held by the public defined, as I say, currency and checking account balances was much higher in late 2008 than it was at any point in the 70s. Okay, so that's why, like I say, I kind of kept my mouth shut after several years of price inflation staying modest. Okay, so you say, well, Bob, then what, what is the explanation? So I'm not saying this is the full story, but the thing that I realized or that I noticed when I was getting ready for that Mises talk is that if you look at M2, the situation flips. That with M2, that stayed relatively modest 
the growth rate of that following the financial crisis, whereas it jumped significantly after the coronavirus hit. And so one way of stating it, if you want, is to say, oh, I was looking at the wrong monetary aggregate, that if you look at M2, then things make sense, that M2 did not shoot up aggressively after 2008, despite what the Fed was doing, and you didn't see consumer prices blow up, whereas M2 did rise pretty aggressively following the coronavirus panic and the Fed's injections, and CPI did blow up. So there you go. We were just looking at the wrong aggregate, but I want to give more context to that. Okay. And also, I'm not saying, oh, just take away the rule now that it's M2 that matters and not M1. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying when you understand and think through, what does it mean to say that M1 grew aggressively after 2008, but M2 didn't, whereas both grew aggressively after the coronavirus stuff? What does that mean? Then it sheds more light on, okay, so this is why we didn't see CPI blow up following 2008. All right. Okay, let me define these things again. So the monetary base, or what's sometimes called M0, is currency, like, you know, $100 bills, $20 bills, plus the commercial bank's reserves with the Fed or reserves in their vault. Okay, so again, it's currency that the public holds, plus currency that's literally in bank vaults, plus if the commercial banks have deposits and credits showing up with the Fed, all right? So for all intents and purposes, it's legal tender money, all right? Because if a commercial bank, if Citibank has a million dollars on deposit with the Fed, they can say to the Fed, we would like that in currency, please. And the Fed, in conjunction with the, I think, Bureau of Printing and Engraving or something, can print it up legally. And so there you go. So if a commercial bank, again, has money in its checking account with the Fed, that's as good as having physical currency because the Fed is allowed to create that physical paper money and give it to them if they want to withdraw their funds. So there's no concerns. Now the Fed would say, oh, shoot, we don't have that in the vault. Sorry. That's not going to happen. Okay. So you can think of M0 or what's sometimes called the monetary base as being like legal tender money, like dollars in a quite literal sense. Now M1 adds one thing and takes away another one. That's why sometimes those things don't move the way you would expect. So M1 consists, like I said earlier, of currency plus customer checking account balances or what's called demand deposits with commercial banks. So it does not include, importantly, bank reserves held at the Fed. Let me just round out the discussion. M2 is everything that's in M1 but it also includes, importantly, retail money market funds, right? So if you add it up, how much do people think they have in retail money market funds in dollar terms, then you would add that to the M1 figure and that would help you compute M2. Okay, so now let me mention one other thing before I forget because this is important, so don't get confused. If you look at a chart of M1, you're going to see in February 2021, it skyrockets, it goes vertical. And that's not because of some crazy thing of the Fed injecting money or banks doing something crazy. It's because of a a redefinition. So this is another thing that makes it hard. I've seen people when I was like in in the comment section of my Orlando talk, I saw at least one person mention this thinking, oh, Dr. Murphy, you know, he's smart, but he's missing this important thing that happened. And no, I didn't miss it. That's misleading. So what happened is after the coronavirus stuff, the Fed 
announced a policy change and they were getting rid of in April of 2020, they removed this limit. So up till that point, if you had money in a savings account with a commercial bank, you could only withdraw money from it six times a month. And I think you could do it more, but then you get a penalty or something. All right. So that was like the official distinction between a checking account and a savings account. And, you know, historically, the savings account paid more interest. But in terms of practically, what's the difference? That was a key difference was up till that point, you could not take money out of your savings account more than six times a month, whereas your checking account, you could do indefinite withdrawals. Okay. The Fed got rid of that regulation. They announced it, like I said, as part of the package of things they were doing in the midst of the coronavirus panic. Because remember, that really hit March 2020. And so as of May 2020, that distinction was gone. So then in February 2021, the Fed went back and revised all the data sets and said, you know, sorry, and I, I should have mentioned M2 included savings accounts historically, whereas M1 didn't. Because again, the idea was M1 was supposed to capture immediately available liquid money that the public has to spend. And so they didn't put the amount you had in savings account into M1 because they said, well, you can only get your money six times a month. So money in a savings account is not as available as liquid to you as money in a checking account. And since like the lower M's are supposed to capture the most liquid type of money, you know, the, the thing that's easily convertible into actual dollars, a checking account balance is more easily convertible into $20 bills in your hand than a savings account balance, right? Because of that constraint. That's the, the idea. That's the guiding principle as to why is it that the higher monetary aggregates have more stuff in it? It's that as the stuff gets further and further away from literal $20 bills in your pocket. Okay. So that was the reason for that distinction why savings account balances originally historically were in M1, but not M2. But once the Fed got rid of that six per month limit on withdrawals from savings accounts, that distinction kind of melted away. And so they recognized that fact. Again, as of February 2021, they went back and revised the time series and they said, okay, M1 is what it always was up through April of 2020. But then in May 2020, now the data shows M1 is including savings accounts too. So if you look at the chart, it looks like M1 just skyrockets. By the way, so I might have misspoken a few minutes ago. I might have said in February 2021, this is when they revised the data, but the actual chart shows the jump occurring in May of 2020. You see M1 go through the roof, but that's not because in May of 2020, the Fed injected or the commercial banks made available all sorts of extra money. It's because of the statistical redefinition. Okay. Now, another curveball, M1 as historically defined, really did increase in April and May and June of 2020, right? Because this was in the midst of the coronavirus inflation. <laughs> but it's just, you have to disentangle the two different effects, right? So the actual number as historically defined did jump. But if you look at the chart right now, the jump is more pronounced than it actually was because of this adding in the savings account balances to the number, All right? And actually, I was cynical at the time when this stuff was going down. And I thought maybe they did this redefinition just to obscure the, how much actual M1 really was growing, you know, to cover their tracks, right? Because as prices started to rise, 
And then people might say, hey, is it because of what the Fed's doing? And then if they went and looked up M1 and saw how much M1 really did increase, they might look bad. And so instead they did this statistical redefinition to be able to say, oh, no, no, that huge spike in M1, that's not anything we did. That's just because of the redefinition. You see what I'm saying? So I don't know that that's true. I'm just saying that's partly what I was wondering at the time. So don't be confused. If you look at a chart of M1, there's a huge jump again in May 2020. Some of that is because of the statistical redefinition, but not all of it. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay. So let me just spend a little bit on intuitive and sort of simplistic thought experiments just to get you to understand the basics of how this stuff works. And then I will once again reiterate what actually happened. I think the easiest way to proceed is like this to understand how is it that the public's behavior can affect the difference between M0 and M1. That'll be easier to think through. And then I'll just very quickly tell you how could the public's behavior expect the difference in growth rates between M1 and M2, all right? So imagine there's just a bunch of currency originally out in the hands of the public. Let's say it's a million dollars and there's nothing in bank accounts, all right? So right now you would say M0 is a million dollars, and so is M1, and so is M2 for that matter, okay? Now, the public goes and they deposit half of that money into checking account balances. So originally, now there's $500,000 in currency held by the public, there's $500,000 sitting in bank vaults, and there's $500,000 in checking account balances. So if you ask what happens to M1, nothing. M1 consists of currency in the hands of the public, so now it's 500,000 plus checking account balances, 500,000 adds up to a million. So it just changed the form of you know, how the public is holding the money. And bank reserves are not included in M1. The monetary base in this scenario wouldn't have changed. Okay? All right. Now, if you had 100% reserve banking, that's where the story would end. But what if you have fractional reserve banking? What if of that 500,000, the banks ultimately lend out 90% of the money, right? So what if they lend out 450,000 of it and only keep 50,000 actually in bank faults as reserves backing up the money? Well, now that extra $450,000 shows up additionally in M1 because the original depositors still think they have their money in their checking account balances, but now the commercial banks made loans, you know, gave 450,000 of that that originally was sitting in the vault to other people, to other borrowers. So they think they have access to the money. So just think of it in the first wave of like, let's say they literally handed out the cash to people who were borrowing the money because they wanted to go spend it, right? Just do it like that just to get the, the concept down, okay? So again, at this point, like the snapshot you take of this economy right after the banks lend out 450,000 of the money that was in the vault, the original depositors still have 500,000 in cash in their pockets. Collectively, they think they have 500,000 on deposit with the banks. So that's a million right there. And then now there's 450,000 in currency in the pockets of people walking around the town who borrowed it from the bank. So they definitely think they have that money. They, they have a liability to the bank, but a liability doesn't subtract from the money supply. 
directly, right? And so that 450,000 certainly needs to be counted in M1. Because effectively what's happened now is $950,000 is in the wallets of the people in the community. And on top of that, people think they have $500,000 on deposit with the banks. All right, so now it goes up to a million four hundred fifty thousand, is what M one is. Whereas the monetary base is still a million. Okay, so that's how that works. And then going the other way, that's the way in which the public's actions can reduce the money supply. That's what happened in the early nineteen thirties when people panicked and they were withdrawing their money from the banks because they feared bank failures. And so you had all these bank runs. M one collapsed, even though the Fed was pumping in money on its end. It was not enough to offset what happened. And so M1 contracted by like a third, I think. Okay. When you read statistics like that and, you know, Milton Friedman type analysis saying, oh, the reason for the great collapse in prices in the early thirties was because the money supply collapsed and the Fed let that happen. It's not that the Fed was out there sucking up dollar bills and withdrawing them from circulation. No, it's that the public was panicked and was taking their money out of the banks. And so because the monetary base was not expanding rapidly enough, that action by the public caused broader aggregates like M1 and M2 to collapse. Okay? All right, now what's a little more difficult conceptually, say you've got an original equilibrium, do it this way. Suppose the public has all the million dollars in currency sitting in bank vaults, and the public just holds all of its money in the form of checking account balances. And again, suppose there's a 10% reserve ratio in practice, either because of statute or just because the banks do that to be, you know, that's the rule they pick. So of the million dollars sitting in bank vaults, there's a total of $10 million in checking account balances, right? In this economy that's sitting in equilibrium, okay? And now the public wants to get into retail money market funds. So from the perspective of the individual investor, he transfers money out of his checking account and gives it to the fund manager, the retail money market fund. So from an individual investor's point of view, maybe he takes 10,000 out of his checking account balance, gives it, and now his account with the retail money market fund right after the, the transfer goes through, forget transaction costs and fees and stuff, goes up by 10,000. So from that person's point of view, he's just changed the form of his holdings, of his wealth, and I want to argue that, you know, it's pretty plausible to assume that when the dust settles, that $10,000 is going to still remain in the banking system in the form of reserves with commercial banks, you know, money sitting in bank vaults. It's not that the guy who runs the retail money market fund is going to take that $10,000 out in the form of cash and keep it in, the, in a safe at the headquarters of the retail money market fund. And it's not that when the retail money market fund uses the $10,000 to go buy more commercial paper or you know one month treasuries or whatever it is that they invest in, that the entity selling them that stuff, those assets, it's not that they keep the $10,000 in the form of $100 bills on their person or they keep it in a vault on their own premises. I'm saying, no, these big institutional players in terms of the actual money that they're getting, that someone's paying them for something that ultimately ends up probably on deposit with a commercial bank. And so I'm saying if we originally thought the community, again, just for simplicity, wasn't holding currency in their pockets, they just had it all 
in bank vaults and they had 100% of their money in checking account balances. I'm saying then if they want to diversify and hold some of their money in the form or some of their wealth, I should say, in the form of retail money market fund balances, that shift in preferences, I would not expect would lead to more currency staying outside of the banking system. So let's say the community decides to take half of their money out of checking account balances and put it into retail money market funds, what happens immediately? I'm saying with these assumptions I've made, M1 doesn't change because yes, temporarily that, you know, as the people spend $500,000, which is half of a million and spend it on investing in retail money market funds, you could say those people, their checking account balances go down by 500,000. But then I'm saying ultimately, whoever ends up sitting on that money leaves it parked at the bank somewhere. And then their checking account balances are $500,000 higher. And so when the dust settles, I think the currency is still going to sit in the bank vaults and it's still going to, oh, I'm sorry, shoot, sorry. Sorry, folks. Originally, the community held $10 million in checking account balances. So they spend 5 million on investing in retail money market funds. Okay. So ultimately, the 500,000 in reserves that were backing up the 5 million in checking account balances that got spent ends up back in bank vaults. And the 5 million in checking account balances ends up being held by different people in the community, like institutions in their role as business enterprises. But ultimately, I would still expect when the dust settles that that million dollars in currency is still sitting in bank vaults backing up $10 million in checking account balances. But not so M0 still remains the same. But now retail money market funds have gone from having zero in them to having 5 million in them. So M2 goes up by 5 million in that scenario. Okay. So that's the way to think about it. And then going the other way now, what if the public panics? And what if they want to pull their money out of retail money market funds and put them into checking account balances because it's deemed safer? Like what if a big money market fund breaks the buck and people panic? And what if the government increases the uh, FDIC guarantee on checking account balances saying not only are you guaranteed your first 100,000 is guaranteed by the government, but now up to 250,000 is guaranteed. So a lot of people panicking in that environment would sell, would get out of money market funds and keep the proceeds in their checking account balances. And this is exactly for those who remember that that's exactly what happened in the wake of 2008, the financial crisis is people were panicking and they were trying to move their money into more liquid, safer things amidst the financial crisis. And so if the Fed holds tight and doesn't inject more reserves into the system, doesn't inject more $100 bills, what would happen would be the opposite of the process I just described to you. I think when the dust settled, M1 would not be higher because, like I said, originally, there's no reason that as people get into money market funds, that that causes people in the community elsewhere to hold more $100 bills in their physical possession. It just would change who the owner is of the checking account balances, I would think, to a first approximation. And it wouldn't mean more $100 bills end up outside of bank vaults. And so then going the opposite way, if people want to shift money out of money market funds and into their checking account balances, I actually don't think that would cause checking account balances to shoot way up if it's just the original amount of $100 bills and bank reserves that we're playing with. We're just rearranging who owns them. 
but it would cause M2 to collapse. Okay, so now, last curveball, what if on top of that phenomenon or that trend where people are pulling money out of their out of their money market funds and trying to put them in their checking out balances, and I've just established if the Fed did nothing in that scenario, I think it would mean M1 and M0 would largely remain the same, whereas M2 would collapse. What if now on top of that, you overlay that the Fed actually is injecting a bunch of money? that the Fed's buying assets, like let's say mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, thereby creating bank reserves. And then to the extent that people want, they withdraw some of that and have actual currency. So now the Fed is increasing, just think of it as the Fed's increasing $100 bills. That's an easy way to think of it. Suppose the Fed goes and buys mortgage-backed securities and treasuries and the way it acquires them is by literally printing up $100 bills, Benjamins, and that's how it pays for this stuff. Well, now the public gets their hands on that money and they go and deposit it with the commercial banks. And so you see bank reserves, the amount of currency in vaults go up. So the monetary base is increasing. And you also see checking account balances in the aggregate go up. So M1 is increasing. But again, by hypothesis, people are not so happy about retail money market funds. And so maybe only some of them get into that. And so maybe that just staunches the, the flow out of it. Okay. And so as the Fed pushes aggressively on that end in the midst of a trend where people are trying to get out of money market funds and into checking account balances, I think what you would see in the data is M0 and M1 would shoot way up, whereas M2 would not. Okay. And you could tinker with the numbers and the thought experiment to say, what if the Fed's pumping in so much money that it makes M2 just rise a little bit, that it's, you know, just enough to slightly offset the desire of people to withdraw their money from money market funds so that on net, there's just a modest increase. And then I think that's what happened following 2008. Like that story I just told kind of matches the data where M0 grew at an unprecedented rate. M1 grew at a very high rate, but M2 grew somewhat, but nothing unusual. If you just looked at a chart of M2, you wouldn't have thought anything special happened in 2009, 2010. And so I think the story I just told kind of explains that pattern. So now you fast forward to the coronavirus panic. There, the Fed was injecting all sorts of money. So M0 increases. People were concerned. And yes, they let their checking account balances swell. So you see M1 increase. But they weren't particularly afraid of keeping their money in money market funds. And so you saw M2 also respond aggressively. It's not that with the Fed's massive injections of currency in bank reserves, technically, was happening at the same time as people were moving out of money market funds, at least the way they were after the financial crisis. So yeah, people were worried and wanted to be in safe assets during the coronavirus panic. But it's not that they were so aggressively trying to move out of money market funds and into checking account balances the way they really were following 2008. And so that's why I'm saying I think the Fed's actions in 2020 and 2021 resulted in what we see empirically is that M2 growth was also pretty aggressive. Specifically, so it's tricky to look at this stuff because when you do it, then all of a sudden, if you expand the charting thing at the Federal Reserve's website, you get that huge statistical blip, like I said, where M1 just dwarfs everything. But here, let me just look at M2, give you an idea of what I'm talking about. 
Okay, so if you just look at them too, and then you do percent change from a year ago. Okay, so I'm looking at a chart. Well, it just goes back to the early 80s. But M2 growth from the early 80s onward, the highest it historically had been in 83, it got up to about just shy of 13%. Whereas in March of 2021, the year-over-year growth rate was about 27% of M2. Okay, so again, M2 growth following the Fed's actions in the wake of the coronavirus panic was quite high by you know post-World War II standards, much higher than it had been in you know, the prior several decades. Okay, so to me, that's a pretty good explanation. And I have a good chart here where if we overlay the growth rate of M1 and M2, percentage growth rates of M1 and M2, going back to the, you know what? It's funny because this M2 chart I've got, it goes all the way back to the 60s. I don't know why the other one didn't. And you look at the growth rate, you can see that following 2008, the M1 growth is huge, whereas the M2 growth really isn't. And so it's a nice little just to show the distinctions. Okay. And again, it's annoying because I would really be able just to do a clean slam dunk and just show you folks how the opposite happened after 2020, namely where the growth rate in M2 was above the growth rate in M1. But I can't because if you do that, it actually shows the growth in M1 skyrocketing. But that's again, because that statistical change they made, the redefinition, right? So you can't really see it. You got to kind of just piece it together. So any event, that's now my explanation of the difference. So to be clear, just in case some of you are getting confused, are you saying, wait a minute, Bob, so do you mean right now the public is like using their money market funds to go buy eggs and gasoline and that's why prices are higher? Whereas in 2009 and 10, M2 wasn't much higher and so they couldn't spend their M2 as much on eggs and gasoline? That doesn't sound right to me. I, I don't ever see people at the grocery store or the gas station using the, their money market. Right, so that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is you can understand how if what's going on after 2008 is people are panicked and they're trying to preserve their wealth. And so they're rushing out of less liquid forms of wealth that are further from actual dollar bills, namely getting out of retail money market funds and into checking account balances and also currency, like the amount of currency like physical dollar bills in people's possession also started rising heavily after the financial crisis. So people even didn't trust the commercial banks. People were taking out money and keeping it like in bolts in their house, saved in, you know, that sort of thing. In that context, yes, the Fed pumping in a bunch of new reserves, you would not expect would show up as skyrocketing consumer prices because we know now and we can have a statistical handle on how much the demand to hold narrower forms of money went up. So by the way, that's one of the things I said in my chapter when I was explaining, you know, here's what happened. I said, well, it's almost a tautology if the supply of money went up, but prices didn't go up. It's because the demand to hold money went up too. But I'm just saying now, I think I have a much better sense of statistically what happened and where the differences and preferences for people changed. Okay, whereas following, you know, in the wake of 2020, as money in the hands of the public went up, that was not coinciding with 
as much of a general fearfulness of, hey, is my money safe? And I need to acquire very liquid, safe forms of money because the financial world is collapsing. So people were panicking for a different reason. Like they were going out and buying toilet paper and stuff. But the, again, shift away from riskier assets into safer assets was not as pronounced in 2020 and 2021 as it had been in late 2008, 2009. And so that's why I think the Fed's injection of money at the level of the Fed can control resulted in more measured price inflation this time around than last time. Okay, I will wrap things up there. So I may write this up for Mises.org. And if so, of course, we'll link to it. Either way, I'll have other explanatory links for this stuff. And if you really want to know, just go through my book, Understanding Money Mechanics, which the PDF is free at Mises.org. So all those links will be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 243. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.